You are listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. Thanks for joining us. We hope that this content is edifying to your walk and an encouragement to your heart. Let's join Pastor Mike as he brings us the word. I had a pretty sheltered life growing up in the mean streets of suburban Atlanta. Middle class family in a subdivision. Never got into the party scene by the grace of God. It wasn't that I was somehow un, you know, not susceptible to peer pressure, but I think I just had enough clarity to know I didn't want to go near that stuff. And uh, looking back, it was the Holy Spirit guarding me. But I did become very familiar with the after effects of the party scene. I spent a lot of time caring for friends in those years, in the college years, who, who were fully immersed. Uh, lots of late nights um, holding holding people back from their yuck. Um, yeah. So there's, there's, there's the high school party scene, but then there's like the, the grown adults with money party scene. And that's even worse. It's just, it's just nasty, right? Um, I was thinking this week about, about raucous parties and big events like that where people just get plastered. And I, I had this memory uh, I went to Lovejoy High School uh, outside of Atlanta, down, down south, and uh, the athletic boosters had the worst idea for a fundraiser ever in the history of athletic booster fundraisers. They uh, got together with the Atlanta Motor Speedway, and, and so they decided everybody who was a high school athlete would spend a day cleaning the grandstands after a race at the Atlanta Motor Speedway. It was the most disgusting thing imaginable. I want you to imagine thousands of rednecks <laughs> in the sweltering summer Georgia heat. 100% unwilling to leave the grandstands as they watched the longest left turn in history. And then, and then they, they leave everything behind except the clothes on their back. And I mean everything. Everything. There's heavy drinking, brawling, and bodily functions all happening in the grandstand because nobody wants to miss a moment of the action. And somebody thought, we should take a bunch of high school students and clean that up. Thank you so much. Whoever you are, wherever you are, could have used some hazmat suits that day. It was, it was atrocious. It was gross. The only other thing I've seen that comes close is college football game day, especially in the Southeast, in, in, the, in the South, Southeastern Conference. Um, I have stood on the bridge of Stanford Stadium in the heart of Athens, Georgia, and watched 90,000 raving fans cram themselves into a stadium to watch grown men fight over an inflated animal skin. It is crazy to me. Um, and, and then you got to watch the, the, the real culprits are the sorority girls coming in in those skirts, because they almost always have uh, bags, Ziploc bags of alcohol taped to their inner thigh. I was a campus minister. I know things. Don't ask. Right? They're, they're smuggling alcohol in. They've got to they've have their alcohol. They've got to party. It's always a party. Pagans love to party. Any excuse to get raucous. And that's exactly, you're like, what is he talking about this for this morning? Daniel 5. It's a party. It's a raucous party party in Daniel chapter 5. There's a new king on the throne of Babylon. 
He has most assuredly uh, not learned from his predecessors. And we're going to see here in this chapter that God is not mocked. He will not be mocked. He hates sin. He confronts it at just the right moment. And, and the heart that is uh, confronted by God, when it's broken and when it's contrite, it receives mercy and grace. But when that heart is rebellious and hard and unrepentant, that's a heart that receives the judgment of God. And we're going to see that. Uh, Proverbs 6 actually references this. Uh, Proverbs 6, 12, a worthless person, a wicked man goes about with crooked speech. He winks his eye, signals with his feet, points with his finger. And with perverted heart, he, he devises evil, continually sowing discord. And so then God says, therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In, in a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. It's a prophetic proverb. We're about to see it played out in the life of King Belshazzar. And we've said this all along in our series in Daniel, but now we can see it happening in the book that the kingdoms of man are passing away. We've only had one king so far in the book of Daniel, but the kingdoms of man are passing away and the kingdom of God is coming to pass. We're, we're expectant for the kingdom of Jesus Christ to come. So let's look at Daniel chapter 5. And because we're going to try to get through the whole chapter, I won't read the text and then go back and exposit. We'll just start with the exposition here for the sake of time. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. So right away, we see that we're dealing with a new king. And as we pick up in chapter 5, there's, there's been some passage of time. Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C. after a 43-year reign over Babylon. Now, evil Merodach his son. Now, evil, we use evil as a descriptor, uh, but that was like a name then. I don't know how evil, evil Merodach was, but uh, he lasted a whole year on the throne and was assassinated by his brother-in-law. And then the brother-in-law lasted for four years before being killed. And then his son lasted a month after that. So there's been a lot of turnover on the throne. And the conspirators who had done this put a guy named Nabonidus on the throne. And he, Nabonidus had a totally different religious agenda. Marduk, or Bel, was the chief of the Babylonian pantheon of gods. And this guy coming onto the throne, Nabonidus, really was uh, uh, not a fan of, of Bel or Marduk and wanted, a, a different, uh, wanted to elevate a different god to the chief of the pantheon. And because the clergy was near to revolt, all the magi and wise men... Um, they, they basically took Nabonidus and put him in the Arabian desert in, a, in an oasis and said, why don't you rule from over here, just like where nobody can see you, and do your thing, and you can still be the king, and then your son Belshazzar can be the de facto king here. But you're, you're really the ruler of Babylon, but just go, go to that oasis in the Arabian desert and stay there so you don't destroy the empire, right? And so Belshazzar's on the throne. He's the second most powerful ruler in the kingdom. And we'll see Daniel later in the chapter elevated to the third most powerful person in the kingdom. And this is why, because you have Nabonidus, Belshazzar, and then Daniel. And, and, and just another point of uh, clarity here. Our, our English text uses the word son. Belshazzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar, but that's just because in the ancient language it's just offspring. They didn't really have di differential words for son, grandson, great-grandson. It's just offspring or descendant 
uh, the same way that we, they, the Jews would say Abraham is our father, right? Well, he wasn't actually their father. He was like way back, their great, 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 great granddaddy. But they would use that word. So, so that's, that's some of what's happening here in the language. It can be confusing if you're not aware of the word usage. So this new king Belshazzar, he's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And he's drinking in front of people, uh, these thousand nobles. This is contrary to protocol for ancient kings. In fact, Proverbs 31 says, It's not for kings to drink wine or rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what's been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. They get, they get drunk and then they do stupid things or they make stupid edicts, right? And it, it puts that ruler in a position when they get tipsy or drunk to act like an idiot in front of their royal court and advisors. And it actually puts them in potential danger of assassination attempts as well because their clarity and their decision making is impaired in that moment. And so it's just generally, it lowers the view that the people have of you as a ruler if you're publicly intoxicated. Um, so for kings and queens, any consumption of alcohol usually happened behind closed doors, uh, away from uh, prying eyes. And, and so this is the departure from protocol. And uh, this is indicative of someone, Belshazzar, who has grown up entitled, who flaunts social norms, demands their every whim be given to them. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had built Babylon. Remember, he's, he's there on the, on the palace roof right before the seven years of his judgment. And he's saying, this is the great Babylon that I have built and these hanging gardens and all this stuff that I have done. And, and so here you've got a grandson who's not lifted a finger, but only enjoyed all the wealth and prestige and prominence that a family member has established, right? So uh, Belshazzar was a spoiled palace brat. Uh, that would be the more accurate way to, to say that. Verse 2, uh, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the kings and his lords, his wives, his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Dumb move. And they're, they're trading out their red solo cups for vessels of worship taken out of Solomon's temple in 586 when Babylon sacked Jerusalem. Big mistake. This is one of those things, it, it would be one thing to, to take for those vessels to just sit there in a pagan museum indefinitely under lock and key as a reminder of Israel's defeat. That's one thing. But it's another thing altogether to profane them in this way. Vessels that were set apart for holy use in the temple now being profaned at this drinking party. And God's not having any of that. Uh, and then to heap insult on injury, Belshazzar starts toasting to the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, and, and wood and stone. And, and, I, and I feel like in this series, I have read Romans 1, 18 to 32 like a hundred times probably. So I'm not going to read it again this week, but it's, it's the same thing. Because if man will not worship the Creator, man will worship the creation. Amen. We're hardwired to worship. We can't help it. And so if we're not going to worship the one true and living God, we end up worshiping other things. And by the way, I said party, drinking party, raucous party. It's an orgy. It's worse than that. 
And it's a celebration of all the things that dishonor the one true and living God. And so verse 5, the party's about to take a turn. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. This is, you've heard the phrase, the writings on the wall? Right? This is the origin of that phrase. Most of us have heard that expression or used that expression. It means we can see how this is all going to play out. I can see how this is going to go, right? Given the current circumstances and the direction that this situation is headed, I can see the end game. I can see how it's going to play out. And so Daniel 5 is the origin of that idiomatic phrase. Verse 6, And the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. And his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. God brought Belshazzar from hard drunk to full sober in one second flat. He sobered right up. But I, but I also need to cut through some of the niceties of the English translation for us here. I'll just tell you what really happened and give you the plain truth. Belshazzar defecated himself. He pooped his pants. I just used poop in a sermon. I can't tell you what that does for my heart. But that's how the text accurate. Somebody gave me an amen. Amen. Pastor used poop. Um, that's how the text is translated. In fact, and I, I had to stop in my study this week and say, you know, I need to look into this. The Bible has a colorful history of poop mentions. There's Ehud, the assassin of the enormously fat King Eglon in Judges. There's King Saul relieving himself in the cave when David was hiding. Ezekiel was told to cook his food over his own dung, right? I shared this with a good bit of glee, I admit freely, um, talking about poop in church. But this is what I love. This is what I love about the Bible. I love this about the Bible. It is gritty, honest truth about what actually happened. And it doesn't pull any punches. It doesn't try to gloss it over, cover it up, make it pretty. It's just like this happened. I love that. I love that about the text. So verse 7, it says, The king called loudly, <laughs> yeah, he did, to bring the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. So no one in the room at that point is able to make any sense of the writing on the wall or, or what has happened. And so the panic is mounting for Belshazzar. It's enough that the hand appeared supernaturally and wrote words on the wall that he can't understand. Clearly there's been some kind of encounter with the supernatural, but nobody's able to make sense of it. And even now that the quote-unquote professionals have come, they're no help at all. And it's not for a lack of incentive. He's offered, you know, an elevated status and gold and fine clothes. And so we've seen this setup now three times in Daniel, haven't we? We've seen this setup. There's some super, supernatural revelation being given, either a dream or a vision or an experience, and nobody's able to make sense of it or interpret it. And so the king calls all the usual suspects to come in and help him, and, and, and they're totally inept every time because they're actually dealing with a real manifestation of the supernatural from God, not from their demonic entities that they commonly deal with and the things that they make up. And so with, with every effort uh, fails, God sends his man in after it's failed. 
He's just waiting till all the options run out, and then he sends his guy. And we've seen this three times now, right? So verse 10, the queen, actually the queen mother, uh, because of the words of the king and his lords, she came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. Like, I don't think that's going to help. Um, there's a man in your kingdom in, whose, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, are found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So, the, so Queen Mother, one of Nebuchadnezzar's wives, ultimately we don't know, it's, it's likely though because of what she knows about Daniel, that this was the Queen Mother. Um, but that information has been lost and forgotten by this new ruler. And it's clear that Daniel's out of favor with the new king. He's no longer in a prominent position in the new administration. But in verse 13, Daniel's brought before the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. And I've heard that in you is the spirit of the gods, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. So now the wise men, enchanters, and, and all have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me the interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be called the third ruler in the kingdom. It's like, are you the Daniel? I've heard about you. I've heard about you. It's funny because you should have been consulting Daniel all along, right? But this is God bringing his man right into the right moment. And so Daniel says, verse 17, Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. This speaks to Daniel's character, folks. It speaks of Daniel's character. No bribe, no reward as motivation for him. It's just obedience to God to do what he's called to do. No power, no position, no possessions can entice the man or woman of God who is fully content in Jesus Christ. Our contentment is in the Lord. I don't need that stuff. I just imagine when I read this that Daniel has John Wayne's voice. <laughs> keep your stuff, you know. I'll help you. Just keep it. I love the, the precedent that Scripture sets for that attitude. You see it all through the Scripture. You go back to Genesis and you see Abram when he's returning from the defeat of the kings, the five kings, and, and, the, and the king of Solomon goes out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that's the king's valley. And then Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem, brings out bread and wine because he's the priest of God Most High. And he blesses Abram and he says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who's delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram tithes to Melchizedek, uh, who's a priest of God. And then the king of Solomon, if you're familiar with this passage, he, he inserts himself and says, hey, um, give, me, give me the people and just keep all the stuff for yourself. Just give me the people. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. 
God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that belongs to you, so that you can't say, I made Abram rich. That was a promise of God. God said, I will make you flourish. I will make you a great man, right? You're not going to have anything to do with this. You can't brag about this. Paul, same heart, when he's talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. That's not even been a thing. I just wanted to minister among you. Just wanted to see God's work accomplished among you. I don't care about stuff. He would write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, that godliness with contentment is great gain. We didn't bring anything into this world and we can't take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing with that, we'll be content. We'll be content. Those who desire to become rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it's through that craving that some have actually wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Daniel's like, I don't, I don't need your gold necklace. I don't need your fine clothes. Keep it. I'm here to do God's work. I'm here to honor the Lord God. And so he continues in verse 18. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from the among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of mankind and sets over it who he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up your heart against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are, are all your ways, you have not honored. Here's a history lesson for you, Belshazzar that has been forgotten or overlooked. And I love Daniel just proceeds to immediately interpret the writing on the wall, but he doesn't get there directly. He wants to remind the king of his need for humility, give him a history lesson. And the point of retelling the story is this. Nebuchadnezzar was a far greater king and man than you, Belshazzar. He was a greater king and a greater man, and God humbled him. And it's implied that Belshazzar had firsthand knowledge of this, this event, right? He saw it happen. And, and Daniel goes on and says, look, Nebuchadnezzar was clearly changed from that experience. He even wrote it up so that everyone in the kingdom could read it. It's been made public, and you have learned nothing from that experience. You've learned nothing. Daniel's charge against Belshazzar is clear and direct. He's guilty of premeditated and profane sin and pagan sacrifice. 
And the fact of the matter is that those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. And he just, it's like, that didn't even happen. It's crazy. And so Daniel goes on, now that he's given him a little history lesson. I love his chutzpah. I'm just going to tell you how it is, king. And then in verse 24, he says, Then from, from his presence, from God's presence, the hand was sent, the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. And here's the interpretation. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So, so let me just give that to you again. Mene, Mene, it's twice. So God has counted or numbered your kingdom and is ending it. He's counted and recounted. It's finite. It has a definite ending point, right? And then Tekel is weighed and found deficient. You've been weighed in the scales of God and you've been found wanting. That's a, that's a terrible thing to have said to you by, by a representative of God. There's not a lot of substance to you as a person, is what he's saying. And then your parson is divided. Your kingdom is divided. It's cut up into pieces. It's given over to the Medes and the Persians. God's prophet, Jeremiah, was called to prophesy in 627 B.C. That's 41 years before the sack of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. So four decades prior, Jeremiah says this in, in Jeremiah 50 and 51. Just some excerpts here. The word of the Lord concerning Babylon, concerning the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations and proclaim. Set up a banner and proclaim and don't conceal it, but say, Babylon is taken and Bel is put to shame. Merodach is dismayed. Her images are put to shame. Her idols are dismayed. For out of the north a nation has come up against her which shall make her land a desolation and none shall dwell in it. Both man and beast shall flee away. He goes on later in the chapter and says, Prepare the nations for war against her. The king of the Medes with their governors and deputies, every land under their dominion. The land trembles and writhes in pain for the Lord's purposes against Babylon stand to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant. And then at the end of chapter 51, he says, I will make her drunk, her officials and her wise men. Isn't that crazy? They're going to get drunk. Her governors and commanders and her warriors. And the result will be they will sleep a perpetual sleep and will not wake, declares the king whose name is the Lord of hosts. Four decades before this happens. Well, longer. Four decades before the, the exiles went to Babylon. And now it's been even longer, right? So the kingdoms of man are passing away and the kingdom of God is coming to pass. So Belshazzar 29 says, he gives a command, Daniel's clothed with purple, the chain of gold is put around his neck, proclamations made about him that he's the third ruler in the kingdom, which we find out really quickly doesn't mean much because they're about to be taken over. <laughs> but given Belshazzar's personality, I'm, I'm kind of surprised he's not throwing a colossal tantrum at this point. But he's following through in his promise for the reward and anyone who could explain the writing. And I think he's still in shock, personally. Daniel's elevated to third in the kingdom just in time for regime change. And that very night, verse 30, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. And I don't know if you know the story, but how they did it is really ingenious. Because Babylon is this huge city with high and thick walls that none could assail. They couldn't get in. 
But the river Euphrates ran through the city. So Darius had some of his army stationed at the inflow and outflow of the river outside the walls of Babylon to make sure that people didn't come and go or try to escape. I think it, it was said in, in history that Babylon could withstand a siege for years and years. They had everything they needed inside the city. And so their station, and then, and then Darius took the bulk of his army upriver, and they dug a canal, and they diverted the flow of the river so that the water level went down. And then the army marched into Babylon in the middle of the night, right under the walls, and it was an almost bloodless coup. There was almost no fighting. Suddenly they were in, they had taken over, and they executed the king. And now Darius the Medes, the ruler of Babylon at age 62. Pretty ingenious. Pretty ingenious. There's interesting wordplay, though, here with the names in this episode. You've got Belshazzar, who's the king, and his name means may Bel or Marduk protect the king. But then you've got Belteshazzar, which is Daniel's Babylonian name, and it's the feminized version. It's may the lady of Bel protect the king. May his consort protect the king. So very similar in sound and meaning, which is probably why uh, you see Daniel's Hebrew name more often, because it would be confusing for the reader. Um, but Bel Belshazzar was the epitome of the spoiled palace brat, born to affluence, entitled to a life of pleasure and hedonism. But Belteshazzar was the epitome of faithfulness and humility, serving for decades and allowing his life to be used by God for, for God's purposes and glory. So two Babylonian names, close, so close together in sound and in meaning, but what a contrast in persons. What a contrast here. And then, and then the use of Daniel, we, we established this in chapter 1. Daniel means God is judge. God is judge. And the only use of Daniel's Babylonian name is in verse 12. The rest of this chapter is his Hebrew name because of the meaning of the name and the point of this chapter. God is judging Belshazzar, right? And so Daniel's reputation and identity as a man loyal to God continued unscathed. And now, once more, it's enhanced. Again, it's enhanced. And Jeremiah 17, 13, O oh Lord, our hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Right? That's what's happened. You've got people living there who don't want to have anything to do with the one true and living God who are being put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Did you catch that? Jeremiah says, those who turn away from the one true God, their names will be written in the earth. The God who spoke those words through Jeremiah used a prophet. We call him the weeping prophet, right? Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. He's prophesying really hard and terrible things for the people of God. Jesus was called the man of sorrows and one acquainted with grief. And it was the hand of Jesus that wrote the words on the wall in Babylon condemning the pagan king. It's the, it's the hand of Jesus. It's the hand of God. The same hand that stooped down in John 8 when the woman was caught in adultery and wrote in the sand. And everybody wonders, what did Jesus write in the sand? Can I tell you what I think Jesus wrote in the sand? I think he wrote Jeremiah 7, 17, 13. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they've forsaken the Lord, 
the fountain of living water. Can you imagine those Pharisees seeing him write Jeremiah 17, 13? Knowing exactly what it says? Or maybe Jesus wrote, Mene, Mene, Tekel, you parson, to the Pharisees. I don't know. <laughs> that might be more appropriate. Same hand. Same hand. On the wall in Babylon is the same hand that wrote in the dirt. And now we're at a moment in history where the writing is on the wall once again. Same hand. Same hand. Our nation's crumbling all around us. Fear rules most of the people around us. Love has been fundamentally redefined. And the consistent message all around us is, you must submit to my fears and placate me or you don't love me. Don't you get that? You can go to the store if you're not wearing a mask. We're transitioning from a guilt-innocence culture to a shame-honor culture. Shame. Told just this week, I was watching streaming missions conference that occurred live in Seattle. It was being broadcast all over the world. And out of this conference, this missions conference, came the message that... Um, all of our evangelism and missions are actually a form of colonialism, and that's bad, by the way. Colonialism. When we share our faith in other countries and cultures, we're, we're insinuating that the white man's religion is superior to their native beliefs. I'm like, uh, yeah, the gospel is the power of God and salvation. Amen. And Jesus wasn't a white man. He was a, a Jew in the first century in the Middle East. See, we're, we're being told by the BLM movement, that racism is evil and all white people are racist even when we don't know it. And by the way, if you think that as a white person you're not racist, you're actually really, really, really racist. We can see that the agenda is at play all around us, all around the world at this moment, wanting to destroy the nuclear family, which consists of one father and one mother and their children. It's not commensurate with the LGBTQIA agenda. We've got Power-hungry politicians telling the church of Jesus Christ that we cannot sing to God in some states in the United States and that we can't even gather in other states right now. We're, seeing, we're about to see the uncovering of the rat's nest related to child sex trafficking and Ghislaine Maxwell's in jail threatening to tell everything. Hope she doesn't commit suicide like Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, yeah right. And if you're wondering why the Republicans refuse to stand up to the left in this country, it's because... Politicians on both sides of the aisle are about to be exposed by her, and they are fearful about what's about to come to light. Handwriting's on the wall, folks. Handwriting's on the wall. God is not mocked. He hates sin. He hates sin with a passion, and He confronts it at just the right moment. And those hearts that are confronted by Him when they're broken and contrite, receive mercy and grace. But when they are rebellious and hard and that fist is raised in the air, it's a heart that receives His judgment and His wrath. And we've got to go. This is our moment, folks. The handwriting's on the wall. I pray that every single one of you, your hearts remain soft and malleable in the hands of God. The gospel must go forth in this moment because the handwriting is on the wall. The church has to rise up and proclaim the message of salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. And as we go with that message, we are not alone because we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts. 
He has sent his spirit to us as a down payment on our inheritance. You are not alone. You are not alone. If you end up in a jail cell for Jesus in isolation, you're not alone. The Holy Spirit of God lives in you if you put your faith in Christ. We go in the power of the Spirit. So do not fear, beloved of God. This is our hour. We must rise up in strength in the Spirit in, in, in this occasion in history. We need to press into the Spirit of God and let Him supply the strength that we need to do what we need to do at this hour, to make Jesus known to the nations. Daniel means God is judge. He hates sin. His judgment is timely. And broken hearts receive grace and mercy. Hard hearts receive judgment and wrath. He's not slow as some count slowness, but he's patient. He's patient, wanting all to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So let us preach the gospel of grace in this hour for the salvation of sinners and the glory of our King. Amen. The Mass Road Church, you are sent.